You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, uh, welcome back. Let's. Uh, we're going to have uh, a discussion with the authors, and I'm just going to ask. I, I just wanted to kick it off with a couple of questions because these guys are both uh, very professional in that they picked out something to read that worked without giving a long description of what was going on. But I'd like to know a little more. <laughs> uh, maybe you could give us uh, just an outline of what this dude is up to. <laughs> um, so the main character's name is uh, Taggart, and um, apparently, uh, I'm just going to read the back of this. Um, <laughs> he has to read his own cover copy. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so Taggart is a person who is born with the ability to heal and, um, as he finds out later, hurt just by thinking of someone um, imagining seeing their their body um, and he can do things like grow or destroy organs or, you know, dysfunctions in organs and break bones and things like that just by thinking about the body. Um, and he works for an enigma of a, of a tumor called uh, Nordine, who's a... A what? An enigma of a tumor. Oh, uh, I didn't understand. <laughs> yeah, he's a, a, a really shady character by the name of Nordine, who is... Um, Spends half his time as a hash dealer and the rest of his time tracking down people who can do weird things that he then, he finds those people and then either kills them or manipulates them uh, to his benefit. And uh, Taggart is sort of like his his lapdog. Taggart is sort of lived like that for a while, but then he gets a a call from an, an old flame who needs his help. Um, and so he has to find a way to get away from Nordine long enough to help his old girlfriend find her missing daughter, Tamara. Um, and the whole time he is hoping that this missing daughter who has powers um, isn't also noticed by his old boss. Uh-huh. So you have a, a sort of a linear two-way structure where he's running away from one person and chasing another one. Yep, a little bit of that. Um, less running away, more, um, hey, is it okay if I step away slightly? <laughs> sort of All thing. Right. So what's a Newman? Uh, yeah, Newman was uh, uh, basically another name for an android. So that's basically it. I had I figured I had to come up with a more original name for uh, that than... than uh, Android, so. How do you spell it? Uh, it's just how it sounds, N-E-W-M-A-N. Okay. So it's a new man, right? Right. And really what's... Really lame, actually, but yeah. <laughs> that's what I came up with. <laughs> so what's the, um, I mean, these guys are, are um, I, I like the way you went from where they're, uh, they're actually in this world and then they're sitting in a living room somewhere talking about right. being in it. So right. it's, it's kind of happening at the same time. Yeah, they're, they're, it's kind of a virtual kind of experience, um, and they're, uh, but I kind of based it a little bit on my own grandfather, who was a, uh, 
a veteran of three wars. He was in World War II, uh, Korea and Vietnam. And uh, he, uh, you know, I'd visit him in Florida and he would introduce me to these old war buddies of his. And I could see, like when I got a little older, I could see that these guys carried a lot of pain around with them and, uh, you know, which they tried to drink away a lot of times. But, um, but uh, yeah, so the, these two gentlemen are, are these old um, uh, mercenaries who, uh, you know, have a, a variety of memories that they've stored on these little cards that um, of their younger selves going through this hellish landscape. And one of the guys, the guy Carl, is sort of like, you know, he's just kind of going along with it with Skinner. Skinner is, is more intent on finding out, like, really what went on and what happened and rehashing uh, what happened. So they took part in it without understanding exactly what the deal was. Right. Well, yeah, and I think that it's like a lot of, um, you know, from what I've what I've seen from people who've been in in wars, uh, that your memory of it is really scrambled a lot of times. Um, like, uh, um, and, and some people try, you know, will forget, you know, a lot of big patches of, of things that they went through, and some people will remember it down to the grittiest detail. And it's it's a really interesting thing about how people remember or forget traumatic experiences on, of that scale. Well, like when I was, uh, um, um, it, um, Ryan just got a big review in the New York Times, which was uh, very um, complimentary about his book. But to me, it was sort of complimentary from the outset. They just sort of is sort of dazzling and hard to understand, and but lots of fun, and all of which we got. But they never describe what the through line of the novel kind of was. Yeah. Is the are these guys the through line? No, you know, there's kind of not really one main through line. I guess there's a spine of the novel, which is that there's a series of Q and A interviews with this guy named Luke Piper, who um, sort of witnesses the onset of this apocalyptic era, and is involved with a couple figures who were sort of instrumental in in launching it. And then, and that happens more or less in our time. He actually ends up in San Francisco for a while, incidentally. And, uh, and then later, then that, those sections are interspersed with sections that take place uh, after this fuss era uh, where people are trying to figure out what happened. And so you have the, the apocalypse in this novel sort of exists in a black box. It's, it's, you lead right up to it and you, you catch up after it. And both sides are trying to figure out exactly what happened or what's about to happen. So part of the the apocalypse is that that there's no real history of it, or there's no agreed on history of it. Right. There are people who have wild theories about it. Like there's a theory that it was a sentient glacier that came down from Alaska and started targeting cities so and awesome. uh, wiping them off the face <laughs> of the earth. Um, and there's p- one guy says, oh, it could have been vampires and werewolves. I mean, there's just <laughs> like all these people, like any sort of wild scenario you could come up with, someone's going to believe it in this future scenario or future time. That's interesting. And yours doesn't take par- par- place in a, a dystopia, an apocalyptic. It's sort of like just the the regular world where these um, these people have these sort of empathetic powers. But the rest of the world is sort of what it was, Catholic schoolgirls and 
dogs and rats. Well, some people would say that Catholic school is a dystopian <laughs> you know, future. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a question of uh, looking at from whose perspective are you looking at the world, you know? So yeah, um, it is contemporary, but it's contemporary and um, told in part from places that we don't usually hear about, namely Africa, <laughs> you know, and street kids in London. Well, does any of it take place in Africa, actually in the book? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we were reading a chapter after this, when he was talking about the, his experience keeping the animals away. But yeah. So that all is part of the... That's in the book. <laughs> that's part of the story, Yeah, he, too. he walks across Africa from, um, from uh, Ethiopia to... Jeez, um, where does he go? Um, from Ethiopia uh, up to Morocco, actually. Um, and Mali, um, he walks. There's a big desert in the way, isn't there? Uh, yeah, it doesn't really matter to him that much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's um, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I was, I have this dream of doing this trek from uh, Morocco to Egypt um, solo. It's when I'm rich and powerful, and hopefully not too crazy. Um, I'll I'll do that, and uh, with the political environment ever allows. But it's I sort of wrote that journey in reverse a little bit south. <laughs> uh huh. Wow. All right. Does anybody have any questions about uh, plots of the story or what's going on in these books? Please. Uh, I was wondering if you had any like uh, comic book inspiration in terms of the characters that you had in your Yeah, um, the question is, do I have any comic book influence? Um, I have read comic books from the time I was seven uh, until now. Um, I used to work at Comic Relief in Berkeley under Rory Root, God rest his soul, uh, or someone rest his soul. Uh, well, we can't hear you. <laughs> sorry, um, I used to work for a, a guy, a famous comic book guy, Rory Root, um, in com Comic Relief in Berkeley, um, who's dead now. Really um, interesting and nice guy. So, yeah, comics have a lot to do with... Um, how I envision storytelling. So, for instance, I suck at tell at endings because comics are serials. <laughs> you know, they just keep going. So I'm really bad at endings. Um, but I'm really good at uh, character development because every new writer for a comic is going to have its whole new take on, on different characters. So um, I've probably read more comics than any other form of literature. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> Bob is applauding. Are you applauding the 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 influence or the author? <laughs> also the author. <laughs> okay. Well, <coughs> you were compared. Uh, you've been compared to uh, Saunders and Bill Gibson. And uh, who did you read? Who influenced you most as a writer? Yeah. So I mean, there are different eras of it. I guess like um, uh, when I was. Uh, how far back do you want to go? Yeah. Really? <laughs> well, how far back I mean, do you go? I mean, well, so I, I guess when, when I was an adolescent, um, Stephen King was was sort of my uh, religious figure. Uh, I read The Stand like three times before I got to high school, and I was just I loved that book to death. And um, but then after that, in in high school, I, I I started to branch out into other stuff. I learned about the Beats and about um, you know. Uh, Eastern European uh, uh, writers or experimental sort of avant-garde poets um, discovered Borges and Pynchon and um, you know Murakami and 
Calvino, and then um, David Foster Wallace was huge for me when Infinite Jest came out. Um, and uh, yeah, George Saunders, uh, Don DeLillo, yeah, a bunch of them, Amy Bender. So they're, they're all over the map. I try, to, I try to be pretty omnivorous with my reading tastes, and um, I try to read broadly. I realize I can't, I, I don't really ever exhaust like any particular writer. Like I've read like one book by William Faulkner and, <laughs> you know, I've read one Fitzgerald book, but it's like I sort of try to um, read a- across cultures and particularly European and South American writers. What about you? You said comics, but what else? Uh, uh, Octavia Butler, um, Nalo Hopkinson, um, uh, Sam Delaney, Steve Barnes, uh, you know, Heinlein, uh, Herbert, uh, you know, I'm a big, you know, I grew up just eating science fiction. Um, you know, it's mostly books that like sort of stood out, like the language is a pal for some reason, really rocked my world when I was younger. Um. Yeah, just um, and then, you know, literary stuff. I'm kind of like, I've I've read it and I don't love it. <laughs> you know, like I, um, I don't like stories where nothing happens. You know, like I don't like stories about divorces. I'm like, yeah, you got a divorce and we're done. I know that. <laughs> you know, like it's great that you had an emotional experience about it and it lasted for you know 300 pages. But I, you know, I like to I like to read when things happen. <laughs> If that makes sense. So. You mean like rats coming out of the sewer? Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I mean, like you get to picture that you get to put yourself someplace else. But um, narratives about you know the suburbs. God, um, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, what would American independent cinema do without the suburbs? You know, <laughs> like it would just be done. So I liked, um, I like adventure. I like action. I like when things happen. I don't like. Um, I don't like the tale of of Middle America. It I feel like it's a it's an oppressive tale. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you feel sort of the same way, right? In a way, I mean, well, I don't know. Well, I mean, I I, I do appreciate a good divorce three hundred pager. <laughs> um, Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates comes to mind. Um, the <laughs> but uh. uh no, I, the way I look at it is I, I kind of see a continuum. I mean, on one end of the continuum is totally experimental, language-driven poetry. And on the far other end are, is totally plot-driven fiction. And I think that the masters of both of those um, are, you know, forms are sort of equally amazing. Um, but I'm always trying to find a place sort of in between. And one thing that that is important to me is is that um, there's an emphasis on language and that I want to have um, my characters be sort of emotionally rich and and have real problems. Like I had a thought, you know, when I was a teenager, I thought, you know what would be cool is to not write a science fiction novel, but write a kind of novel that a character in a science fiction novel would read. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what I, I guess I'm trying to do. Wow, what does that mean? <laughs> That's interesting. This is what it means. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, uh, Grania. Are, are you using um, the, the, the African legends and myths because you've got your characters going 
going from, from Morocco to, to Mali, so on, so on. That's a, that's a, that's a rich mind. So we only heard a short excerpt. Do you, do you weave some of the African legends and myths and stories into your... Um, yeah, I don't know if I... Do you have to repeat the question? Sure. Do you, she's asking if you draw on African uh, legends and sort of in terms of fantasy, you know, like, like yeah. Nalo does. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, so as a theologian, um, one of the things that I find interesting is that um, we've sort of located myth um, historically, and that's not the way myth functions. So the, the African myths, so to speak, are generally located around the myths told during the times of slavery, right, and as they're brought to the U.S., and that's not the way myth functions. Myth is constantly being created. Johnny Appleseed is a myth, <laughs> right? Um, you know, uh, Manifest Destiny is a myth. These are all things, these are all stories that gain more validity from the times they're told than their connection to actual um, history. So um, my, so no, I, I don't reference, I don't reference older myths. My goal is to create new myths. <laughs> My goal is to generate um, within within the the language now, within the 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 legends now, to create hopefully, I mean, a new legend, new myth. Cool. Huh. Well, I think w one of the things we were talking about Nalo Hopkinson, who's yeah. a mutual friend and and uh, is a very popular writer now. And partly what she does is um, use some Caribbean legends and myths that. Uh, that were probably recreated from what they originally were in Africa, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, and then she recreates them in Toronto, and um, um, you know, but that's a that's a different way, and she deliberately does that to, I mean, a lot of uh, fantasy sort of draws on Greek mythology and and this, and she she's just part of what she's doing is just replacing that machinery with another machinery, you know. Yeah, but I think. You know what Nala, I what I think Nala does also is say like this is the structure, okay, but like let's take it into the 21st century. And so, what does it look like with um, you know in in this context? And that and that's pretty much what I'm doing. I feel like I feel like you know if you look at this novel, you can be like, oh, this is just like you know Icarus in some ways. You know, this is um, just like Odysseus in some ways. Like of course, you know, it's genre is myth. Right. Like it's, you know, the rules of genre basically are like, this is the myth. You know, here's the good guy. Here's the bad guy. Here's the, you know, femme fatale. You know, here's the thing that the guy has to lose. Here's the thing that the guy has to gain. And like the rules for genre. Genre is myth. So this is just noir myth. 21st century with funny powers. Well, how much do you, <laughs> how much do you feel like you draw noir? Because there was certainly a noir sensibility and a noir I think a lot of the humor in, in yours seems to come from noir yeah I mean I oh yeah the third man I, I like I just drive humor yeah I, I love crime um, <laughs> and that sounds weird when I say it <laughs> um, I love I, but I, I do I love crime fiction I love um, I, I love those tales I love they are they're morality tales 
Um, and the only you know conceit is that the morality is tale is told from is told from the tale of the loser. And um, I and I love I love that and I love that about Taggart about the main character that like he sort of comes in without giving too much away he comes in as the loser, and you know every I feel like every noir tale is the tale of the loser. Huh, never thought of it like that. Interesting. Well, the the other thing that struck me was you were talking about Stephen King. I mean, to me the genius of King was that he he would take these kind of uh, fantasy tale, uh, a horror tale, and he would set it, he would go to great pains to set it in a very real, mundane, quotidian world right. that was very normal, you know, and then all hell would break loose. You know? Yeah, yeah, I, to- I agree. You know, one of the things I felt, too, is I grew up in a, um, a rural uh, town. and uh, Where was that? It, Con- it was a little town called Conway, about an hour north of Seattle. So as a farming community. And um, I remember reading Stephen King and feeling like he wasn't condescending to the kind of people that I grew up with. And and it was very comforting to me to see characters of his. And there's actually, I, I still remember scenes of his books where, um, like Cujo, I, I can't remember any of the sort of gore that happened in that book, but I do remember a scene where a woman, you know, comes into some money and buys her husband a piece of machinery in order to have him agree to let her go visit her sister. You know, these little weird emotional moments that he sprinkled throughout his books or, or this sort of sense of fellowship in the stand was like totally just brought me to tears when I read that. And, um, and so, yeah, he, he was real uh, instrumental to me uh, really early on. Well, and then, yeah. And in a sense, you do that with, uh, I mean, you start out with a a sort of a uh, a disquisition on Catholic schoolgirls, you know. <laughs> you're placing it in a, nor- you know, a sort of a normal world, but then entering the, you know, giving it this, um, talking about the, well, you talk about people in terms of their smells rather than their... <laughs> You know, but it it was, uh, to me, one of the, what I learned from Stephen King was that it, for real horror, and I guess for noir too, the world has to be very real, has to be, you know, the bricks, you know, it has to be pieced together in a real way. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of, that's why, um, you know, that's the fantasy that works best for me when it takes off from that. Yeah. um, I mean, the book starts in in a real way. It's about... Um, a drug deal gone bad, <laughs> you know, which is... Where? In Morocco. In Morocco. Yeah. Um, so, you know, immediately you're you're in international waters, you're into politics, you're into drugs. It's like, it's it's very concrete, you know, and um, there's very little about powers and such in the first few chapters. And, you know, even then you just go into more about who this character is. I think emotional resonance is always more important than, you know, the flash and the bang. So this guy didn't really want these powers. You know, the, the, that you know, enigma of a tumor, Nordine describes it as the, um, the thing that lives inside of him. So I, don't, um, I think of it more sort of like personality or, or character traits that like, you know, sometimes there are things inside of us, whether we want them or not, they're just there and we just have to compensate and deal with them. And I think that's where he's at with it, where it's just like 
this is just part of who I am. You know, that's why I get weirded out when people call it like a superpower. It's not like he's like flying <laughs> in the air, shooting laser beams out of his eyes. It's like, no, it's just something he can do. Well, it's kind of the reverse, it seems to me, because your, your superpowers that you describe are, are empathetic in a way. They, they, they really rely on the other person's, you know, they, you're drawing something out rather than putting something in, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's just you know, the limits of my writing. I can, I can only write about relationships. I can't write about, um, you know, things on their own. You know, like I have to, really, I have to write about how they interact with, with something else. So I can't write about superpowers. I can write about how superpowers interact with people who don't have superpowers. You know, like that's just, I'm limited in that way. Right. Did you study writing? I mean, you teach it. Uh, yeah, I, I did. I got a, a, a MFA from uh, Bennington College and studied it as an undergrad as well. Uh-huh. Now, um, well, that's where Brett Easton Ellison went, right? Uh, Bennington, yeah, he did. Yeah. He went there as an undergrad, yeah. Oh, you were there as a graduate student? Yeah, as a graduate student. Okay. Where'd you go to undergrad? Uh, Ever- the Evergreen State College. Oh, that's and right. We went yeah, through yeah. all that. Yeah. And you were at Ithaca. Yeah, I was there for a while and then left. Did you study writing there? What were you studying? Uh, I started out doing TV production and direction and then uh, switched over to um, uh, religious studies. Oh, okay. <laughs> Explains a lot, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> and who? what was Bennington like? Um, it was great. It was a, a low-residency program, which meant that I would fly out there twice a year and, and stay there for... 12 days and then the rest of the time work from home which was Seattle and uh, I send my work off to my advisors and I got to work with some great advisors and like who were there um, writers here yeah they? so I worked with uh, four people I worked with uh, Maria Fluke uh, who's a novelist uh, a guy named Oskold Melnichuk who's a novelist and uh, Rick Moody and uh, Amy Hempel I love Rick oh. Moody yeah <laughs> Yeah, he's great. Yeah. He's a great uh-huh. teacher. Rick Moody. Yeah, yeah and Amy Hempel. Yeah, Amy they're, Hempel, yeah. They're both up there in Vermont, right? Uh, New York, I guess they live, and both live in New York. Yeah. Cool. Anybody have any questions or comments for our... Is there a longer name for the Newman? A longer name? You mean... Because so many of the other things, I ha- I'm sorry I haven't read the book yet, sure. but so many of the characters and the physical things that you described in the book all had uh, corporate ties. And oh, somebody yeah. was responsible for it. But the Newmans seemed like they just came out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Newmans are kind of, they, they don't play a huge part in the novel, but they're sort of always hanging around in the background. Um, and they're, you sort of come to learn a little bit more about their origin. But it's not, say, corporate-sponsored as weaponry is, right? So. It's like a Newmanism across the internet. Right, right. It's its own thing. Yeah. We had a question from Grania or a comment? Oh, okay. All right. Well, one of the things that struck me is uh, one of you, it's funny, I was, um, I've forgotten which well, I think it was your novel was, somebody called it the first global SF novel of the 21st century. Awesome. Who is that? Oh, you yeah, hadn't heard it before? No, I wanna, well, Maybe it wasn't you. Wanna, <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I haven't heard that. Maybe either. it wasn't. 
But it struck me that both of these uh, books are very contemporary in that way, that they're, um, um, I don't know, it, it's like, it's like science fiction to me, I, I've been a, I'm a science fiction writer, and I, I've been for 30 years, and science fiction seemed to grow out of its, it seemed to be a field that grew out of itself in a way. And now it seems like it's drawing, um, it's drawing literature into itself. It's like a, sort of like a black hole. It got big enough to where it's, um, it's exp it, it now has enough gravity that it draws. I mean, uh, an obvious example would be like uh, people like Michael Chabon or, um, or yourself. You know, people who are, either one of you guys, people who are into, they didn't start writing because they, this may not apply to you, but because they always want to be a science fiction writer, they want to be a writer, and then it turns out that science fiction has enough gravity that it 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 pulls it it, it sort of begins to um, um, this it the subject matter sort of draws people to it. Yeah, I mean we live. I mean we live in kind of science fiction world now. Anyway, I mean I'm still. You know, once in a while, I'd still pause and marvel at the idea of an ATM machine. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. It, 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 if you think like, or even with my kids, like talking. Yeah, or in <laughs> Spanish, even. You know, um, but you know, my children who are eight, eight years old and four, um, it's fun to talk to them about cassette tapes and Sony Walkman and and before people had computers in their houses and when you wanted to look up a piece of information you had to call a librarian you know and just these various things that or even go to the library or go to the library yeah and uh, so it feels like there are so many things that we can draw upon just in contemporary reality that are just crazy that are wild and, and especially when you look at it with hindsight and um, that I think ever I think ultimately all fiction will be science fiction to some degree because, um, you know, with the coming singularity, twenty twelve. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like part yeah. of what you're writing about is a sort of a social singularity. It's like everything everything's different in this book, right? Yeah, I mean, it's um, one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to sort of pull the rug out from a reader where you wouldn't be sure whether you're reading sort of a televised depiction of something happening or the thing actually happening or a video game version or or in the characters the way that they they talk about their world is very blurred it's, bl it's sort of a blurring between the virtual and the actual um, for instance there's a character gets hit on the head with a with a flower pot and like suddenly there are little birds and stars like flying over his head you know and that's and that for real. That's like literally what's happening. Like, but of course, you know, we know that from <coughs> cartoons. And so I just pulled in this sort of cartoon <coughs> trope, and and put it on this character. So I wanted it to be sort of kind of a halfway point between like realism and and uh, televised or uh, represented reality. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's a real difference. Yeah, in the back. Real loud, I can't hear you. Hi, in the room of people, I'm um, curious about other characters that seem to have come into the piece that 
Yeah. Yeah. No, but I'll give a few spoilers. Um, so Yasmin and um, Taggart uh, were in a relationship, and um, she broke off the relationship with him. Um, and so there's this tension, because um, at one point later after they've broken up, he's like, you know, if you ever need me, call me. And she's like, I'll never call you. <laughs> so then she calls him. And he's like, ah. You know, so there's this whole dynamic of... You know, what's expected, what's not expected. Why'd you call me? Why didn't you? Um, but yeah, um, so that's about that on that one. Yeah, please. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how science fiction, realm science fiction thing, and then the realm of spirituality. Yeah. So where do you see this? The only reason I'm laughing is that last week I, I taught a class on, on science fiction and religion. Um, so, yeah, it's the right person. How'd it come out? Um, it came out really well, actually. It's, um, I'm teaching it online this semester. Um, I think science fiction and I'm going to say religion as a whole um, both attempt to do the same thing, which is um, take uh, incomplete information and make a complete picture. Um, so they cross over a lot. Um, I think religion and spirituality was a science fiction of its time. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, as we go forward, you know, um, we still bow, we bow to technological gods. I've never seen an atom. I'm convinced they exist. I'm convinced to, you know, structure my entire world around the notion of cells, having never really seen a cell except for in high school. and. I can't really be sure if what I was looking at was actually the cell or the glue <laughs> on the slide. I don't know what it is. I don't know how science works, but I have faith in it that it works. Well, you know, there's this line in, in theology, I don't care how deep you get into your religion, that there's a point where you're just going to have to take it on faith. So I think both, I think science wouldn't exist. I mean, the, the, this whole dialogue is a, is a post-enlightenment conversation because previous to the Enlightenment, Theology and science were the same. <laughs> there was no difference. The purpose of science was to find the divinity in God's creation. So you, you explore God's creation enough until you, you see the divine spark in it somewhere. Um, so post-enlightenment happens in Europe. There's problems with that. If you look in Islamic world, the whole notion of science and religion emerged in a very different way. Um, I think that... Um, yeah, they both try and address the same issues. You know, why are we here? You know, what happens when we die? <laughs> you know, what are we? Those those questions, I think, both science fiction, science, science fiction, and theology, I'll try and try and answer, and to varying degrees of success. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, please. Yeah. 
So I'm sort of interested in what you might think about the science fiction as the envisioning of the future, which was a kind of traditional role, I guess. Yeah. And how that's changing, or is it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think um, one thing that I, I, I guess this might be a sort of a backdoor way to answer the question, but when I was writing this, I, I was thinking a lot about science fiction in general, and I have to confess that I kind of stopped reading science fiction, like straight-up science fiction, when I was about 14. So I was working on a lot of sort of half-baked notions of what it even was, and um, or what it had become. And uh, I had this constant fear as well that, that I would come up with some idea that I thought was totally original, but like s that some science fiction writer had gotten there first, and I just knew that was going to happen. Uh, and uh, so, but I, I had this thought that um, that if you take a technology that we are familiar with, um, and you try to really explain it, you know, I think uh, you'll get to a point like what you're talking about about having to accept certain things on faith. Like, if you have, say, an iPhone, like, how do you, how do you explain how it works? Well, okay, how does your iPhone work? Well, there's chips in it, right? What is a chip? Well, it's a piece of silicon. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's, you know, and it works with signals. What's a signal? Well, it's something that goes to this tower. What do you mean a tower? You know, and you can go down this rabbit hole of, like, a metaphorical, like, explanation of how something works. Um, without ever really understanding it. And you can use something without it ever really understanding how it works. And so in this future um, world that I've created for this book, um, the characters interact with their technologies much in the same way and not mistaking uh, the ability to use a, a user interface with actual understanding of it. And so you have people who have this... Uh, this thing called the Bionet, which is basically a biological internet, where if you get sick, you can upload your immunities, and other people can download it, and you can download remedies and stuff. Or if you break your leg in the woods, you can it'll be fixed, etc. Um, but no one really knows how this stuff actually <laughs> works, and so people are like, "Yeah, I have this little thingy here that I just speak into, and it somehow it all works out." Um, because that the thing that was. You know, the, sort of the last science fiction I ever read was, uh, it seemed to strike me as the thing where all the characters were extremely savvy about how the things in their world work. They would explain it. Yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> so I wanted it to be, like, I wanted there to be a lot of half-assed information about the technologies of the future, right? Um, I don't know if that even answers your question, really. Sort of. Well, my answer is kind of big, too. Yeah. Yeah. Getting there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't remember the exact quote, but I know that Isaac Asimov said that as technology gets more and more advanced, it becomes magic. Yeah, it, yeah. It, any, yeah. any sufficiently advanced technology seems looks like magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to kind of 
map of the yearbook, is there a similar sort of thing, thing going on where the characters aren't necessarily in control of what they can do either? And they're not, they have to learn how to handle these powers. And so there's a certain sort of magic to what they can do that they are not in control of. It's evolved with them. Yeah, I mean, it, um, y yeah. I think in the next book that I'm writing, um, I kind of go more into that. Um, more the second liminal book I'm doing, I go more into that. My my favorite scene of any Rocky movie is is not the actual fight; it's the training. You know, like I love the montage of the you know, <laughs> you know, punching the meat, and you know, and I just I think that that's um, I, I like. Actually, no, there is a scene. There is a scene or two like that in the Liminal People where Taggart is. Um, not to give anything away, but Taggart is is training another liminal person on like this is how you get this done. Like and it's like you're using too much energy. Like this is easy. You can do this. Why are you grunting your your face as you're trying to do this? You are not using your face muscles for this. Relax. Get into this, you know? Um I think it's just like a a good life lesson, <laughs> you know, of like, you know economy of energy, you know, only use what you have to. You know? Yeah. You sort of answered it, but um, I wanted to, I know, having read the book, did you envision the sequel before you wrote this one? It, it does hint towards the sequel. Yeah, so... So what happened with this book was I um, I wrote this book in a month. Um, I just, like, sat down and just, like, you know, just pooped it out. Um, in a very... In a, so know, to speak. Yeah, in a very, you know, prima materia sort of poop way. Um, but... In part, that was because um, I'd written another novel before it that was, f you know, fully fleshed out a little more uh, complex. And I, I had sent it around for about a year and a half. And I collected some incredibly awesome rejection letters. Um, and, uh, you know, the last one that I got, was somebody wrote, you know, this, this novel is really complex. Can, maybe if you wrote something simpler. And I was, I, like, I was offended by the, I was like, you want me to write something simple? really like that's where we're at now like you know tv is simple like you know movies are simple novels are supposed to be the place of complexity and you have just told me to okay i'll write you something simple and um it was the liminal people which is so <laughs> not simple at all i don't think i can do simple but um my goal is to get that other novel published um to sort of that other novel has like two other aspects to it, so I um, I think I just named it earlier tonight, the Liminal World. But I, I kind of want to write um, a three book Liminal World. I just need a three book deal from some publisher um, so that I can just sit down and get that done. Yeah. Well, but now would you regard um, maybe this is an old fashioned way of looking at it, but would you regard your yours as fantasy or science fiction? I think that's a false dichotomy. I think. Right. I think. Granted um, that. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I think it plays on both. I think you know, the 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 amount of time spent on anatomy and physiology is a science, and and its manipulation of anatomy and physiology um, on a mental level. Well, we know that you know, um, you know, protons and electrons can change. Um, direction just by observation. So if you can observe, if you find a way to observe someone's anatomy and physiology, is it possible that you can manipulate them just by that observation? That makes it science fiction. At the same time, it's fantasy in that like it's not happening right now. At the same time, the conventions of the genre of fantasy 
make it so that it's not happening in the 18th century and there aren't swords and dragons around so it doesn't right. fall under fantasy so it's like that's what i'm saying it's like it's a false it's a false dichotomy i think fantasy and science fiction operate on a continuum and this sort of i think leans more on the science fiction part of the continuum but i could if someone said that it laid more on the fantasy side i wouldn't fight them on it well it depends on how you define them i agree with you it's a largely a false dichotomy mm. but um you know, usually science fiction traditionally depends, uh, there's a device. There's a, um, um, but as you said, there's a learning curve in this in this stuff. And the biology, you're talking about, you mentioned Octavia Butler. I think she was the first science fiction writer I ever read who used biology as uh, she was a, um, mm -hmm. it was a hard SF, but it was about biology instead right. of, um, so, but then you look at like the dispossessed, like total science fiction book. But it's there's no sun, there's no real sun, there's yeah. spaceships in it. Like yeah. there's no like that's it. There's no science in there. You yeah. look at um, Star Wars. Star Wars is fantasy. Totally. You know, the, yeah. so it's like I don't I don't know where those lines are really drawn. And I think they're well. What I'm saying is they didn't they didn't have a chip put in them. I mean, <laughs> I mean, as Ryan is saying, he's I think what Ryan's book does is like deconstruct science fiction in a way. It's mm -hmm. like science fiction without without the guy that is it, it's the opposite of the traditional science fiction thing where you have this marvelous device and then you have this info dump where this guy explains what he's doing, right. you know, and in his nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. Right, right. right. And that's <laughs> right, sort right. of the, the point. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And all I meant in, in the stupidest way, uh, you're right. <laughs> it's it's Yours reads like science fiction rather than fantasy because these people are, um, they're not manipulate. It's, it's certainly not magic. And um, it was just, that, I guess my question is, um, I think what you said is really true that a lot of the difference between fantasy and science fiction is how it reads. Does it read like right. fantasy? And a lot of times that's just the setting is in the past rather than the present, the future. But, um, um, you know, it strikes me that uh, one time somebody wrote that the, the very word the novel meant that there was a change in what long narratives were. Long narratives used to be about kings and queens and magical events and, right. and you know, all this kind of stuff. And long about the beginning of the 19th century, people started to write books about ordinary people mm -hmm. like Jane Austen about divorces and marriages and how are you going to marry off your daughters and they were writing about the 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 quotidian world mm -hmm. of yeah. money and manners and all that kind of stuff and it was it was such a new thing that it was called the novel right you know because uh, a the long new. narrative about just a bunch of uh, some guy trying to marry off his daughters was unheard of. Right. It seems to me that in the that now, as we are in the twenty first century, what we call the novel, more and more has uh, fantastical, almost romantic elements in it. Even mm -hmm. all of them. You know. I mean, it's it's very. Um, there's a reason why uh, you know Rand's book is not published by a science fiction publisher. It's published by you know Grove Atlantic. It's not even called science fiction. I think the guy in the New York Times said it's sort of like science fiction, but he never said it really was. I, I th come to think of it as sci-fi curious. 
<laughs> Sci-fi curious. <laughs> I like that. What is that? Is sci-fi curious? Yeah. What is it? What like is being that? like bi-curious. It's like bi-curious. Like, uh, yeah. Oh, curious. Curious. Oh, all right. All right. I get it. Yeah, but I think that's that's um, you're not the only person exploring that territory. It seems like a lot of <laughs> a lot of people are. And what it's totally okay to be sci-fi curious. You know? What I think is unique about about Ryan's book is uh, is just what you said. It sort of deconstructs because nobody has the slightest idea what they don't even know history anymore. Mm. You know, they don't even know what. Yeah. You know, they they don't debate about how the empire fell or. You know, the post-apocalyptic science fiction, which is a long tra uh, tradition of that, but part of the story is what happened. You know, right. there was a nuclear war. There was yeah. a plague. Well, there was a this. You know, and I think that that's not too far from our reality. I mean, we live in a country where, what, like 25% of the people believe that our president was born outside of the country <laughs> and is a socialist. Right. So it's, you know, yeah. it's like different... Um, yeah, it's that uncertainty. I, I wanted it to be an uncertain, uneasy feeling about the future yeah. in this book. I think that's what, uh, you know, I mean, th that's not what stuck out in the thing that you were um, reading. Uh, but I think that's what that's what uh, sticks out in the novel as a whole, the way it's it's described to me. It's it's, um, and that's that's a that's a new thing. I think that's kind of that's kind of a neat way to look at um yeah well i mean we yeah we live in kind of uncertain times i think so we do that for sure <laughs> but uh seriously ryan i you should ch sorry just you should really check out the blood of heroes it, the blood of heroes yeah it's this, that movie i was talking about before it's this movie that starts out with like the title card is like no one knows why the apocalypse happened oh, wow. no one knows and people started right, living underground right again and no one knows when the game started being played with a dog skull. And oh, you know, that like, sounds great. Yeah, and then it just goes <laughs> from there. Grania. Yeah, well, this is, this is a, uh, an interesting development in the future of science fiction. Uh, you know, the, the inclusiveness, the going from Africa to uh, an uneasy Stephen King future. You know, it's, it's more and more, as you say, the black hole is more and more... It's, it's beginning to be understood that science fiction basically created the future that we live in yeah. because all the engineers and scientists read science fiction and 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 so the genre that we have always called science fiction is very small you know rocket ships right. and this sort of thing and more it's now more and more um, forms of, of literature are being included in, in, in this yeah in this yeah, well, that's what Kim Stanley Robinson says. We live in the future. So, yeah. you know, it used to be science fiction to me was always promotional literature for the future. Let's go to Mars. Yeah. Let's go yeah. to the moon. Yeah. You know, let's build robots that will clean our houses. You well, know. well, that's part of the, coloni the colonization of science fiction. How science fiction functioned as colonization throughout the rest of the world after the atom bomb. That, you know, our science fiction sort of um, operated as American propaganda for the elitism of our science, you know. So, you know, previous to that, it was it was the UK that really had the the hold on science fiction as a genre. Right. But it was only after that that we sort of you know took that. But then you've got things like uh, 
you know, you get people of color, you get more women doing science fiction, and it's no, it can't just be propaganda anymore because it points inward and it looks at, it critiques itself. You yeah, know? yeah, it begins, it begins to do what Ryan is doing. Exactly. That, you know, it begins, yeah. No, that was a definite change that happened in the, in the 60s. Another question for Ryan. You mentioned um, um, older combat veterans that you experienced, but we had a bunch of newer ones lately. Yeah. Have you had a reaction from any newer combat veterans who were Man, I got, a, I got a letter uh, from a guy who just got back from Afghanistan and read my book, and it was like one of the most moving things I'd oh, really? read recently. Yeah, it was really great. And um, he, uh, yeah, he, he was really moved by the book, and this meant everything to me. But it's just that one guy. Uh, so far, but uh, yeah, I mean the the character of Skinner in the in the book is uh, really it's, it's kind of a a mix between my grandfather and uh, James Hetfield of Metallica, <laughs> sort of what I wanted this character to be a blend of, and um, but there there are certain aspects of him that you know I think I I was trying to as someone who who never has experienced that. Um, definitely looking from the outside in, trying to understand, you know, what those people go through as they, as they remember or forget their experiences. There's actually a great movie called Waltz with Bashir yeah. that, um, that really investigates, like, the faultiness of memory and how um, uh, war can just warp memories. Is that that Israeli movie? Yeah, 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 yeah and it's, yeah. it's um, like, done in... Uh, that animation, what is it called? Rotoscoping. It's really a beautiful yeah. movie. These guys in this tank, and they have no idea what's going on. I remember that. Yeah. They don't have a clue. Yeah, and then, I mean, that goes back to Vonnegut, too. I mean, you know, the thing about Slaughterhouse-Five that's really compelling is that you have the, they're not heroic figures whatsoever. They're just some guy in a fucked-up situation who could be, like, behind a counter at a grocery store but happens to be, you know, in a war zone. And... Um, uh, that's always struck me as, as very real, a real way to depict those kind of experiences. Please. When I heard the name Taggart, it reminded me of this old British police uh, show. Is that related at all? For legal reasons, no. Um, <laughs> um, no, but it, it was in my mind when I, when I, made, the, when I um, made the character. Who? Um, it was an old British TV show. Oh. Uh, yeah. Well, one question I had, I thought it was intriguing what you said of science and religion both being ways to attempt to make a whole picture out of scattered information, incomplete information, but you're trying to put together a whole picture. Yeah. And um, so where would you put art in that? Uh, you're, talking about, you're talking about science fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're talking about religion. And science fiction, uh, not in the sense of science fiction as art, but science fiction as a um, as a a s way of speculating on the the future. Mm -hmm. Where does art fit into your cosmology as you present it? I mean, I think it's it's one of the bridges between the two because, um, despite what fundamentalists will have you believe, um, theology allows for imagination, um, and art is the is the expression of imagination, um, you know. So I, I think there's this place where you get to imagine what God meant by blank, 
<laughs> you know, um, imagine what the Bible means by blank, and then in science fiction, it's the same thing. Well, imagine if, you know, the internet was for our bodies. Um, you know, imagine if, you know, we didn't have to talk in order to, to communicate. Um, I think that, I think any time you express imagination um, in a way that other people can see that, that is art. So science fiction, uh, or in a way, is the artistic bridge between religion and science, in a way. It's, yeah, you know, I think yeah. so. Yeah, <laughs> that would make sense. That would make sense. Not to get too deep. <laughs> All right, well, anybody else for these guys? This has been um, a great kickoff for the new year. Some pretty deep stuff, and... Um, Thank you for coming and thank these guys. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.